Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, January 15th, 2019, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our next two Starseed Quests to Arkansas are March 15th through the 18th for the Spring Equinox Athena's Birthday Gathering, and then in May, the 17th through the 20th for Pleiadian Lineup. This is a soul group reunion, and all star seeds with at least one star marking at galactic degree are welcome. Please write to crystals at starseedhotline.com for more info. Our special guest this evening is author Brian Power with his new book, Song of Atlantis. It's about the sustainability of the Earth envisioned by well-drawn characters, thinkers, scientists, and explorers, led by an American Indian anthropologist, Gordon Tallbear. Three storylines are interwoven throughout the novel. It begins 12,500 years ago with Eamon Goro, master architect of the advanced civilization of Atlantis, harnessing the Earth's forces in an unprecedented structure that will provide a perpetual and limitless source of clean energy to sustain the planet's growing civilization. They soon unravel the secrets of perpetual energy and plan to recreate this energy source to benefit the world. Excuse me. In Song of Atlantis, Brian speculates that when the ancient civilization's civilization of Atlantis realized their island was in peril, they sent emissaries to all parts of the world in the hopes of imparting their knowledge to other less enlightened cultures. This premise sets the stage for a riveting thriller that pits good against evil as a team of contemporary scientists discover a treasure trove of technology left by the Atlanteans that may reveal the secret to harnessing clean energy for the entire planet. You can visit his website, which is songofatlantis.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy, Jada, and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. We have an online starseed community at starseedhotline.ning. Com, and it's a safe place to connect with other star seeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please just click follow on our page here and you'll get our weekly show notices if you enable the notifications for that. The star seed um, confirmation readings are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power, you can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please remember, if you want a Stage 2 interpretation of that chart, you'll need to order it four months ahead because we now have an even longer waiting list. So first off this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia and her fascinating Starseed News. <laughs> hey, Anastasia. Evening, Hi, I feel like I want to go... I always like to do that. It's so exciting. Thank you so much. 
Well, let's give you some fascination because we have a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, Double feature is on the horizon because there will be a lunar eclipse that will occur simultaneously to a supermoon this very month. The supermoon blood moon lunar eclipse is coming to North and South America as well, and the, uh, the UK included, I mean, and parts of Eastern Europe this month. The total lunar eclipse will start late on Sunday, the 20th of January, and finish early on Monday, January 21st. And because it occurs during a supermoon, it will be about 14% bigger than normal. Wow. And a newly discovered asteroid called 2019 AS5 just had a close flyby with Earth. A newly discovered asteroid designated 2019 AS5 flew past Earth at a very close distance of 0.04 lunar distance on January 8th. This is the first known asteroid to fly by so close to Earth since last February. This is a small asteroid. It was first observed at Mount Lemmon Survey nine hours after it flew past us. Close call, big shave, didn't even know about it until it was here and gone. 81 significant earthquakes have rattled Alaska so far in 2019. Today is the 15th. We're talking 15 days here. Mainstream media isn't talking much about this, and the experts tell us that everything is going to be fine, but the truth is that we've been witnessing a large amount of seismic activity all over the world. Up until just recently, most of the shaking has been elsewhere on the globe, and so it has been easy for Americans to ignore, but now North America is rattling and rolling. Alaska notoriously experiences a lot of seismic activity, of course, but in the first nine days of 2019, it has been shaken by 81 earthquakes uh, of a magnitude of 2.5 or higher, according to the USGS. Of these, five have been magnitude 4.5 and one reaching magnitude 6.1. And let's not forget the 7.0 that happened in the final 30 days of last year. And so I have to correct myself. This uh, 81 quakes is not through the 15th. It's through the 8th of January. Holy. So that, that is a lot, yes. And in the Canary Islands, they're having an earthquake uh, resurgence. Seismic activity has soared 360% in the Canary Islands since the year of 2016. They say the seismic activity in the Canary Islands is increasing dramatically, passing from the number of 330 quakes in 2016 to 1,100 in 2017 and 1,527 in 2018. According to the data, 1,527 earthquakes have been measured in the Canary Islands since 2016. Wow. Through 2018, we haven't measured any this year so far, but I'm sure there have probably been some. And the volcanoes are also uh, voicing their opinion right now. Plumes of ashes of ash is rising uh, because Mount Etna has suddenly roared back into action. And the Krakatoa volcano update, there's been spectacular video of Anna Krakatoa uh, that now has a crater lake in it. Um what happened was apparently the volcanic cone collapsed 
uh, has turned into a lake with steaming water. They say there's no explosions that have been recorded since yesterday. Uh, the activity has continued to calm down, probably temporarily, and the forest on that island is completely destroyed by ashfall, but is still barely visible. And so the aerial photographs show this crater having caved in on itself, and there is a pool of water in it that's steaming. And the Bali volcano in Mount, uh, the, a Bali volcano called Mount Agung, uh, is returning to its phase eruptions. Uh, it erupted uh, late last Thursday evening. The eruptions themselves only lasted for four minutes and a few seconds, but this uh, eruption was the second since the uh, end of December, December 30th, two times in 15 days, 16 days or so. And this is interesting. Scientists are preparing for future fault line rupture of Hikurangi subduction zone. Uh, and this is in New Zealand. They say that it's not a matter of of if the Hikurangi subduction zone will go, it's when. And that's what the Kiwi scientists are preparing for. They're developing an emergency response plan to prepare for the rupture of New Zealand's largest fault. Using a credible magnitude 8.9 earthquake and tsunami scenario, five civil defense emergency management groups from across the North Island are now working together on the plan, which is vital to make sure people are ready and resilient for a future earthquake and tsunami event. The project's launch is in response to research over the past few years, which suggests the likelihood of an 8.9 quake from rift rupture is much higher than initially believed. And one would wonder if that is somehow that all that scenario revolves around uh, the increased activity in the ring of fire and the volcanic and earthquake activity that's on the uptick across the planet. <clears throat> well, mm, this is kind of biblical, guys. A massive swarm of locusts uh, visited Mecca in Saudi Arabia late last week. Actually, they plagued Mecca prompted authorities at Islam's holiest site to launch a cleaning operation to remove them. Photographs on the Internet show the men, don't show their heads, men in gowns with big brooms sweeping up large piles of locusts. Videos that have been posted to social media show the insects swarming around the cleaners and worshippers in the city's grand mosque where millions of Muslim pilgrims congregate every year. Specialized teams had been directed to work into the fight to eliminate the insects. Now, I remind you that earlier last week, a plague of locusts devastated farmland in Mexico. I reported on that last Tuesday. Yeah. So they got from Mexico to uh, Mecca, Saudi Arabia. Hmm. Well, in our lost birds department, a tufted duck from Eurasia, recorded in Australia for the very first time ever. Now, this is a bird that's usually seen flying in the skies over China and Ireland, which really seems to be kind of contradictory. I, I have to wonder about this. I didn't research it. Really, China and Ireland, they're not exactly in a similar locale. But anyway, <laughs> the article says that the bird usually flies over China and Ireland, has found itself in a spot of trouble. It is a lone male tufted duck, 
named after its luscious plumage. It has somehow ended up in the West Melbourne suburbs sewage farm, far away from any of its mates. Bird watchers have swooped on the West Melbourne suburb to catch a glimpse of the bird never before seen in this country. They tell us that the Eurasian bird migrates south in the European winter to India and southern China and has been recorded in Malaysia and Thailand, but never before this far south. All the way down to Australia. And speaking of Australia, they are having a heck of a heat wave. They call it Code Red, and it's been issued as Port Augusta has hit 48.9 degrees centigrade. You want to know how hot that is for those of us that aren't on the metric system? Well, that's 120 degrees today as a heat wave is setting in across much of Australia and is threatening more record hot days, 120. You know, I don't think much about that from Palm Springs if you're from... Palm Springs, that's not such a big deal, but a lot of places in the world are not accustomed to that unless you're in the deserts, and Australia is in their summer. You know, I just said the other day, ooh, it's cold outside. I wish I were south of the equator in the summertime. Well, you know, let us be reminded that there are extremes in all seasons, so uh, I think the lesson is that be happy with what is (laughs) and learn to (laughs) cope Well, there have been uh, more booms in the sky. Uh, Southeastern Ohio has experienced that. They say that they haven't found the source for loud explosion-type noises that were reported in the town of Brookfield. Now, while some people suspect the boom sounds are connected to local injection wells, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources says it's found nothing to support that. The Brookfield injection wells have been the subject of controversy since their permits were first granted, and the latest complaints concern loud explosion-type noises. But the residents are saying this is very distinct. It's something that we've not heard here before, and it's loud, very loud, just like an explosion. We call it an explosion boom. Now, people contacted authorities. They said that they did checks on three seismic monitors in and around the well site, and they said nothing happened in there. Nothing happened in there, so nobody knows what this is. And also, Pennsylvania has been recording strange sounds in their skies as well. And as I look back with my rather somewhat embarrassingly, admittedly, Uh, dim memory at times, I do believe that this is a recurrence that occurs just about this time of year. It seems to me, and you may email me and correct me, but I do believe that many of these reports about sounds in the sky are coming during the winter months, uh, just about this time of year. It seems every year, or every couple of years, this is when this starts up again. Don't know why, but just thought I'd point that out. And in Russia, they had a weird thing happen. Uh, By the way, I'm just finding out about it, and I think that it's just now breaking the news. It does come from the Siberian Times, after all, and so one would not expect us to be right on top of that. But the Siberian Times reports that one month ago, an epic natural event suddenly blocked a river, the the Burea River, Burea River. And uh, the army is tasked with moving a mountain, to allow this river to flow again. 
and uh, they have to have it for their hydropower, this water. But when we say that the army is moving a mountain, it is a mountain that collapsed into the river, and that's why they have to move the mountain out of the river so that they can have electricity. Now, initial descriptions about this mountain collapse was about a meteorite. They thought that maybe this landslide or this collapsing mountain was caused by a meteor strike. Uh, they don't know. Now, the scale of this is immense. There is 34 million cubic meters of rock that suddenly collapsed into the river. They say that that would fill 13,600 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Put another way, they say if all Americans showered at the same time, the water used would fill roughly the same space. Wow. Wow. So teams of researchers are heading out to that site where the level of the river is increasing a few centimeters each day because there's downstream blockage. And people will continue to investigate, uh, including uh, geologists, hydrologists, land surveyors. And um, they, some people say that it was not a meteorite strike, uh, but they're not sure that there won't be another fall from this mountain. Uh, hunters who first reached the scene... Uh, who were alerted by something wrong, by the change in the flow of the river, are reporting that there were hot rocks at the collapse site where they could warm their hands. So that certainly does imply heat. Other people in the area are saying that uh, we're trying to find the explanation for this incident, and some of us insist that it was a meteorite. So some say no, some say yes. There it is. Uh, Let let me give you the poll results. 27% said it's a meteorite crashing to Earth. 40% say it's a landslide. That's the winner. And 33% say it was a UFO attack. So, (laughs) Um, Laser uh, laser, uh, has triggered electrical activity in a thunderstorm for the first time. Now, I know you're going to go, huh? Well, Uh, Hang on there. This uh, report comes from the Optical Society of America. The Optical Society. You know, optics? Well, here's the story. Just just bear with me. A team of European scientists has deliberately triggered electrical activity in thunderclouds for the first time, according to a new paper in the latest issue of Optics Express. This they did by aiming high-powered pulses of laser light into a thunderstorm. Why did they do that? At the top of South South Baldy Peak in New Mexico, during two passing thunderstorms, the researchers used laser pulses to create plasma filaments that could conduct electricity akin to Benjamin Franklin's silk kite string. No air-to-ground lightning was triggered because the filaments were too short-lived but the laser pulses generated discharges in the thunder's clouds themselves. They say this was an important first step toward triggering lightning strikes with laser beams. Why do they want to do that? Yeah, why? It was the first time we generated lightning in a thundercloud. The next step of generating full-blown lightning strikes may come 
the experts add, after the team retro-programs their lasers to use more sophisticated pulse sequences that will make longer-lived filaments to further conduct the lightning during storms. Oh, just go ahead and experiment, why don't you? The potential (laughs) applications of the technology could be profound. And so let's hope, everybody, that they know what they're messing with, which, of course, they do not. All right, our final report for tonight. Everybody, what is it going to take to get you off the grid? Huh? What's it going to take? I'm preaching to the choir here, so... I'm not really talking to you guys, but what is it going to take for people in general to get it? Here's something that shouldn't shock us, but it is dismaying. The Amazon Ring device gave their employees unrestricted access to the footage of customers' homes. Now, we see these ads on television all the time. The Ring uh, alarm system takes photographs of people who come to your door You can access that information through your cell phone. Ring is a home security camera company owned by Amazon. And this Amazon company allowed employees unrestricted access to the cameras inside of people's homes, according to a report from The Intercept. Now, this Intercept uh, uh, periodical reported last week that Ring, quote, provided its Ukraine-based research and development team virtually unfettered access to a folder on Amazon's S3 cloud storage device that contained every video created by every Ring camera around the world. Well, I I want to insert a little editorial comment here. You know, maybe when we sign up for these services, we ought to figure out where uh, the home country of their research and development is originating from. Mm. Ukraine-based. All right, let me go on. Uh, This would amount to an enormous list of highly sensitive files that could be easily browsed and viewed. Downloading and sharing these customer video files would have required little more than a click. The video files were were not encrypted. They were left unencrypted. And the Ukraine team was also provided with a corresponding database that linked each specific video file to corresponding specific Ring customers. Ring also reportedly provided similar access to executives and engineers in the United States, allowing unfiltered, round-the-clock live feeds from customer cameras, regardless of whether they needed access to this extremely sensitive data to do their jobs. An unnamed source told The Intercept that if an engineer, quote, knew a reporter or competitor's email address, they could view all of their cameras, end quote, and claimed employees joked around by spying on their coworkers' home cameras. As advertised on Ring's website, Ring allows you to, quote, monitor your home from your smartphone, tablet, or PC, end quote, with the added ability to speak to anyone on your property from anywhere through built-in microphones. And Ring goes on to say in their sales spiel, Ring's customizable motion sensors let you focus in on the most important areas of your home. 
You'll get instant alerts as soon as Ring detects motion, so you'll always be the first to know when anyone steps foot on your property. Wow, and so will all of our employees. Ring lets you monitor every corner of your property with a video doorbell at your door and stick-up cams around the house. You can create a ring of security around your entire home. Maybe a ring of spies would be more like it. (laughs) I will say that Ring has denied these claims. Well, what else are they going to do? Wow, people. Wow. Yeah, well, you trade your privacy right. for convenience. For fun, for sheer glee, for, fun, for sheer yeah. voyeurship. Wow. Okay, that's all for tonight. <laughs> From <laughs> yeah. my heart to each one of you, much love. Have a beautiful week, everybody. Thank you, Ariel. Thanks. Thanks so much, Anastasia. You do such a great job with the news, and we so appreciate it. So uh, we appreciate it, and... We will see you um, week after next, because I believe you're yes, going to be on, on special assignment, assignment next yes. week. So yes. week after yes. next, Thanks. we'll see you again. Yep. Okay. okay. All right. Okay, so thank you for the Starseed News. So um, right now, I'm going to get uh, Lavendar's mic open, and um, our guest, let me, let me, oh, the switchboard is really full. So let me just hang on. I see... Uh, there you are, Brian. I was looking for your microphone. Okay. All right. So, Lavendar and Brian, you're both live on the air. And, Brian, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. We love talking about Atlantis. So, uh, Lavendar, are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Okay. Take it away. So, Brian, let me say that um, your book was sent to me by your PR person, Mm-hmm. And I, I dove right into it, and the minute I dove into it, I picked up the phone and started calling some key people so that they would be able to get your book. And, and hopefully I was uh, going to have you on the show on Tuesday, and so I told him, I said, I hope he's going to be on our show because this guy really has a lot to say about Atlantis. So I just wanted you to know how excited that I got about reading it. I must say, though, that I have not finished the last... 35 pages. Well, so I plan I'll forgive, on doing I'll forgive that you for that for tonight. the moment. <laughs> so um, we all are very excited about this book and, and want to promote it. And let me just ask a couple of questions, if I might. Sure. What what possessed you to to write this book about Atlantis? And do you think that, it, that Atlantis is really um, part of Antarctica? Well, uh, you got two, two questions there, and um, one of them, uh, the first one is I have been trying to write stuff for years and years and years, and I had read some um, interesting books. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're you're probably familiar with Graham Hancock, um, and uh, you know Boval and uh, and Chris Dunn and people like that who've theorized about alternative theories regarding the pyramids. And I thought, well, gee, you know, that that's really cool. But, you know, maybe we can get that that message out to a broader audience, you know, a general reading audience. So I started fooling around with uh, with writing, and everything just started happening. Uh, and it was just, um, you know, it, it all it, a whole bunch of things happened that were, you know, memories from my childhood, uh, experiences as an adult, 
um, uh, books I had read, everything just started flowing together and, and into this book. And I couldn't stop writing. So it was, um, you know, that was kind of how it came about. Uh, is it is Antarctica uh, Atlantis? It's one of the theories. You know, most of the theories of Atlantis center around the Mediterranean. So Atlantis was either in the Mediterranean or just outside the gates of Gibraltar, either just north or just south. Uh, and I saw this other theory that it was a great island in the southern Indian Ocean that drifted on its tectonic plate to become Antarctica. And I thought, let me try that one. You know, let me fool around with that. And it worked very well for my story. Uh, you know, uh, I think we can all comfortably say Atlantis did exist. Where it existed, you know, that that's up for grabs. Um, you know, so I, I don't mean to be so indefinite on it, but uh, it's just that uh, the, the Antarctica theory worked for my book. Um, you know, but I don't know if that's a definitive answer. I'd love it to be. I think that would be great, you know. When I read it, it, it felt like truth to me. It felt like truth to me when I was reading. Everything that I read in this book, it's like truth to me. It's like, wow, I don't know what kind of high entity came and sat on top of your head <laughs> to, to write this book, but I'll tell you what, it was. I'm very impressed with the way that you brought all the the different modalities from different countries and different um, time spans and brought them all together. I'm very impressed with how you did that. Well, thank you. One of the big things that I was trying to make sure I did at each stage of, of the writing was to make sure that what I was writing had some plausibility. Uh, now, granted, I go off a, a, on a tangent about um, you know, compressing sound waves to uh, become energy that could, do, to, that could cut and lift and do all kinds of miraculous things. I have no idea if that's um, uh, a, a realistic theory. I'm an English major, um, and uh, so I'm not sure if that has any weight at all. But I thought, well, you know, when we started watching Star Trek, you know, we were we we bought right into the idea of a warp drive. We brought right into the idea of setting phasers to stun. So why not? You know, so uh, so as long as it had uh, a reasonable amount of plausibility, I left it in the book. Well, when I started reading about the device that was able to cut stone and levitate stones, I said, oh yes, that's exactly how the pyramid was built. I. I I really got into that whole theory, and I think you're absolutely correct the way you wrote it. In fact, everything that you wrote just made me think that you had some kind of um, electrical ability or scientific ability. Uh, did you have any scientific people helping you write this book? No, I didn't, but I did have a sense at, at times as I was typing, I felt like I was channeling something. Um, it's because I would be typing away, typing away, and all of a sudden I'm going, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know he was going to do that. Um, and it was almost like something else had taken over. Uh, it was uh, a weird and wonderful experience, um, and I, I hope that all great writers have experienced that. Uh, and it's not just me getting some electrical impulse from the planet Mongo. You know, it's like... Uh, but it was uh, it was one of those things. I did feel like something else was almost helping me write the story. Well, I definitely felt that all through the book. Uh, tell us a little bit about your theory about the Giza complex and Orion's belt, and what was aligned twelve thousand five hundred years ago. Give us a little history about that. Okay, that was uh, I had read about um, uh, the Belgian astronomer uh, uh, Boval, uh, and I think Robert Boval, I think, and he in 1992 came up with the theory that said, hey, you know, 
um, the Giza Plateau is really a star map. Uh, you know, the, the three, the Great Pyramid and its two sisters are aligned very much like uh, the three stars in Orion's belt. And then he went further to develop a computer program uh, that detected, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, plotted what the actual movements of the stars would have been like over thousands and thousands of years. And he finally figured out that the alignment of the three periods exactly matched the alignment of Orion's belt 12,500 years ago when uh, Orion was actually much lower on the horizon. And I was fascinated by that. And then he, uh, he went on further to say that there are other aspects of the whole uh, Egyptian um, uh, layout, you know, the, the Valley of the Kings and everything else like that, that suggests a further star map. And uh, Graham Hancock had also said the same thing about the uh, Aztec uh, and Mayan cities, you know, that these things were actually uh, star maps. And so that the, these ancient civilizations knew something. And where they got that information was, is really kind of the intriguing uh, question. And uh, in the Central American cultures, both, both the Inca, the uh, uh, Mayan, and the Aztecs, they had a very similar uh, origin theory that, uh, that this uh, great bearded creature came out of the sky and taught them how to live as human beings and taught them about astronomy and planting and how to live uh, in, in harmony with each other. Um, you know, it's just amazing how all these uh, these these theories, uh, you know, these these histories, uh, came out the same. And I was I kind of got caught up in all that, and so uh, I thought, well, geez, let me let me start weaving this stuff into my story, and maybe these people came where the the uh, uh, em- emissaries from Atlantis, uh, who legendary, uh, and uh, Donovan talked about it in the 1960s in his song, uh, that they set out the. Uh, uh, the physician and the architect and the artist and, and the, uh, uh, you know, the scientist uh, and uh, to the various reaches of, uh, of the world to teach civilization to people. And so I grabbed that idea, and that was kind of at the heart of my story. And, oh, and that, uh, was the, that was the perfect heart of the story. In fact, that's what kept me reading page after page. I said, oh, he's got a hold of something here. I can't let this go. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about how you brought in color and music and, and mathematics. Tell us a little bit about how you brought that into focus. Well, I had, I'm an amateur musician of, you know, I, I'm very modest skill, um, and music has always fascinated me. And I, uh, and I read a wonderful book by uh, uh, Dr. Oliver Sacks uh, years ago. Uh, it was called Musicophilia. And uh, he was talking about how uh, 99% of human beings are hardwired for music. We either like to listen to it or we actually want to perform it, play it and perform it. And it's the great mystery, I think, of, uh, of human nature. And I thought, well, why not make my people have a music-based culture and use music as the source of their uh, engineering marvels? Uh, so I just kind of took that idea and started running with it. And I said, well, and I had read um, uh, a wonderful uh, essay one time about uh, the uh, founding of the pointillist uh, artistic movement where you juxtapose colors together. You put two colors together, and your mind's eye sees a third color. Uh, and this actually started in the uh, textile industry in France, uh, and then the artist community picked it up. And we, that's what gave us the Monets and the Lutrex and a number of the others. Uh, and I thought that idea was really great, and I thought it's the same thing applied to music. 
you know, because if, uh, you know, if you take two musical notes together, your mind's ear actually hears a third note. Uh, so let's take the music and move it up the scale and, until it becomes uh, radio waves, and then gradually it becomes color, and then it becomes God knows what else, you know, a, a million octaves up uh, above where you started. And so I just kind of started playing with that idea. Uh, like I said, I'm not sure about the scientific merit of it, but I like the sound of it, you know. Well, the way you described it, uh, the the building blocks of, of, of the pyramid and, and everything, it just made sense. Color, sound, vibration, mathematics, everything being in equal measure. Yeah, I just I just thought it was incredible the way that you described all of it, especially the, the part about music and, and how that, let's see, there was some... Um, Something was said about Bach and Beethoven. Can you explain a little bit about that? How you came up with those those um, examples? Uh, well, you know, I, I don't know my uh, classical music as well as I should, uh, but I know that each one had a different style of uh, of writing. And so, when I had my hologram, my my Atlantean um, uh, character, uh, it shows up as a hologram and gives his his talk to the modern explorers. Um, I wanted them to understand that he was speaking in music and he was using music in different ways, maybe in a staccato form the way Bach would, maybe in a more uh, orchestral uh, flowing uh, 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 way like Beethoven. Um, and uh, you know, so I, I just wanted to kind of you know, throw that in to say this was uh, a rich, uh, textured uh, uh, speech in which he emotionally was going from uh, high points to low points and back again, and it was uh, reminiscent of many great works of music. Well, that really caught my attention when, when I was reading along, and and this mural came on the wall, and you touched it, and it became alive like television. And then the person was singing the information. I mean, it just gave me a chill to my bone. I just went, "Whoa, yeah. this is the way it happened, and the way and, it is happening." Yeah. And that's why so I, I really, I, you know, I really applaud you for reaching deep into your psyche to to bring forth the truth of all of this information because I feel it's truth. What you have written is truth. Well, thank you. And and my uh, one of my secondary characters, uh, um, uh, Damien, uh, who's uh, the computer uh, genius, but has a terrible stammer. But he he also has a hobby of singing the blues, and when he sings, he doesn't stammer. And uh, that was based on a, a real guy that I knew years and years and years ago. Uh, he could sing like an angel, uh, but uh, he could not carry on a conversation. And I thought, you know, this, this is interesting that music would be the problem solver in communication. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I, t- I tried to take those ideas and, and bring them out and share them with people. And also the idea of music as color. Um, because 23% of the uh, world's population are what they call synesthetes. They actually, when they hear music, they actually see color. Um, and I think I mentioned in the book about uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, he would drive his engineers crazy, saying, no, no, I want, I want a deeper shade of blue. And I saw a Paul Simon video one time where he said uh, to his bass player, no, no, he said, I want it to be a, a darker shade of brown. You know, it's like... You know, well, if you're a musician and you hear a command like that, what do you do? <laughs> so you just go with it. <laughs> you go with it, yeah. Yes, sir. How does this sound, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, very, very interested in the way that you put together 
the the sound, the colors, the the mathematical equations, it just all made sense. It all made sense. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you talked about, um, building of Stonehenge. Give us a little insight to what you think may have happened with Stonehenge. Well, Stonehenge is another one of the great mysteries. It's uh, there's a, a number of them all over the world. Stonehenge uh, in in England and Newgrange in Ireland, as well as a number of their smaller uh, copies that are, are also populate uh, the Isles. Um, you know, Stonehenge. The upright stones are 14 tons. Uh, they were quarried in Wales. You know, uh, a, uh, you know, 70, 80 miles away, uh, brought across a river, dragged across land, and you know, uh, placed upright on the uh, Salisbury Plain. And then uh, seven-ton cross pieces were fitted right over the tops of these um, uh, the, these uh, vertical stones, and the whole thing was laid out in a perfect perfectly uh, uh, precise uh, uh, star map. Uh, it was a solar map, so basically, you know, that the sun rises exactly through this exact same spot every single uh, year. And it's like, okay, how did these people do this? They didn't have the wheel. They didn't even have the cutting tools. They were rudimentary farmers uh, 5,000 years ago. Um, and, you know, how did they do that? How did Newgrange get built? The same type of thing. Um, uh, these tons, stones weighing tons and tons. How do they get lifted into place? Uh, to me, that's one of the great mysteries, and uh, I'm hoping we solve it someday uh, and find out, you know, what was the advanced technology, the advanced skill that uh, these people possessed that allowed them to do that, or that somebody came in and helped them. Uh, Someone came in and helped him. <laughs> yeah. No doubt so, about it. All of a sudden we're saying, hey, you know, we've got a bunch of farmers here in England, and uh, they need some help in their planting cycle, so let's go uh, show them, uh, you know, we'll build a solar candle, uh, calendar for them uh, and show them how to use it to, uh, to, you know, monitor their planting cycles. Well, you know, somebody did that, you know, because uh, those people I don't think did it alone. So one of the things that intrigued me about the book was how you went into great detail of how the storyline goes to the pyramid making energy for the whole planet. And yeah. can you give us a little insight to how you came up with that reasoning? Yeah, uh, there's a guy named uh, Christopher Dunn who wrote a wonderful book called The Giza Power Plant. And um, Mr. Dunn was a, uh, uh, and is a, uh, a mechanical engineer, and he studied um, the Great Pyramid uh, at Egypt from the, the point of view of a mechanical engineer. And he looked at the discolorations in the in the rock that obviously came from some type of a, an explosion or, or chemical reaction, and you know. And he looked at the design of the um, uh, the, the, the various shafts, uh, and he came up with this idea that uh, the plant uh, was uh, the whole pyramid was designed to sit on this granite plaza uh, and vibrate with the resonance of the earth at, at the key of F sharp. Uh, and all you had to do is rechannel that key of F sharp into the key of A by using baffles, uh, and you could then, you know, feed a couple of chemicals, and then you could uh, create pure energy that would pour right out of one of the shafts. And it was a very plausible uh, book. I really enjoyed it, and I thought, boy, I don't think a lot of mainstream people are reading something like this, you know. So I said, well, let me put that in the book, you know. And that was really kind of the core that. Um, you know, my heroes discover this ancient uh, civilization. They discover that the ancient civilization has this advanced technology to produce unlimited clean energy. 
and uh, given today's climate, you know, they try to bring it forward. And the bad guys who are working for people who are making all their money from the carbon-based industries, uh, the bad guys are going to try and kill my good guys. You know, so I thought, you know, there's a lot of contemporary relevance here uh, that you know people can have a lot of fun out of, out of this kind of a read. Well, it's it's like true true, true to form. That's what we're yeah. dealing with right now. Yeah, I, I was at a book signing one time. And I, was, I, I gave that explanation. Somebody said, well, what's your book about? And I said, well, my good guys do this, and, that, and then the bad guys do. He says, well, he says that, that, that's exactly what's going on today. And I said, it's nonfiction. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, yeah, of course, it's a, book, a work of fiction, but it does uh, have uh, so many elements of, of, of what we're really facing today, this, uh, this crisis of what do we do about helping our Earth cure itself. You know? And uh, that's really at the heart of, of the whole message. I loved your characters. I especially loved your Indian character. Uh, well, yeah, your Gordon Tallbeard. Yeah, he was. Uh, I had always admired the Indians. When I was a kid, I, I wanted to be the Indian in the Cowboys and Indian games we played. And um, as I started developing the story, I said, "Well, I need somebody who is a has a DNA link back to um, these explorers from Atlantis." And so I needed an American Indian to do that. So. Uh, that's how I kind of created Gordon Tallbear, Ph.D. anthropologist, um, you know, Dartmouth, Harvard, uh, and also a gifted athlete. Um, you know, he's, he was a fun character to draw on, and I tried to give him a lot of the characteristics of, of other uh, fictional heroes that I've admired. Uh, Larry Darrow from The Razor's Edge by uh, Somerset Mom, as well as uh, my favorite fictional character, Shane. Uh, you know, that these were people that... Uh, they had a strong moral core. Uh, they uh, they knew that at all costs they had to do what was right, uh, regardless of the price they had to pay, and uh, and that's uh, something I admire greatly. And I think it exists in a lot of people. Uh, we just don't see enough of it. You know, so I, I wanted, certainly you know, enjoyed uh, everything that you wrote about him. It's like, oh my goodness, where is he today? I, I want to know him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fix you up. Yeah, that. maybe we can find him and run him for president. Yeah, there you right. go. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's the kind of guy we need. That's for sure. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, Joanna, his love interest, uh, she comes right out of my family. Uh, so many of her personal traits and beauty come from my wife, uh, and her Irish uh, wit and charm uh, come from uh, my side of the family. Uh, and she was a fun character to draw. Um, and uh, Chuck Kenoshi, uh, uh, my uh, Gordon Tallbear's best friend and, and fellow uh, scientist, uh, is uh, I drew him right out of uh, uh, James Mitchell's Hawaii. Uh, there was uh, a wonderful thing about the uh, the Japanese Americans uh, uh, who had settled in Hawaii and you know, served in the military in, in Europe and were highly decorated and served in public office. And I thought, well, that was my inspiration to create uh, a, a Japanese American. Uh, hero who also had some comic relief. Yeah, so, uh, and I'm uh, curious of why you named him Chuck. I had a hard time going. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, he I, he had to be very American, you know. It's uh, you know so because he was um, he was second generation uh, Japanese American. He was born and raised in in Atlanta, for God's sakes. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so I just had to make him kind of uh, you know had the same first name as any any other all American and. Uh, uh, but he he was a fun character to write about, and then um, 
uh, Madison Tolls, my uh, the, the financier for this whole exp- exploration expedition, uh, he's based loosely on a friend of mine who is a self-made millionaire who settled in New Canaan, Connecticut. So, uh, you know, I uh, uh, you know I, I had fun uh, you know creating a lot of these characters, and uh, a lot of the secondary characters came from uh, family influences, uh, friends I've had. Things like that. So I, I and uh, when I started writing early on, I had hired an editor to help me out, and she taught me about a lot about descriptive language. And she also told me, she said, you've got to make people see these characters. You know, you want to have them have a, a visual uh, idea of who who it is you're writing about. So uh, I had a lot of fun uh, developing them. Well, so so who who was that? Darth Vader, Satan type person. <laughs> that was uh, well. He, he's uh, I. I the story that I relate about um, that uh, the priest had told Joanna uh, about his experience in, in Africa confronting the devil, that was an actual story from my family. Uh, my father's first cousin was a missionary priest in Tanganyika uh, for uh, 22 years from 1938 to 1960. And after he came back, we were sitting in the backyard, uh, you know, in the late 60s, uh, you know, a family picnic and, I asked him about, you know, what was it like over there? And he told me that story and about his confrontation with the devil. And it was like, I said, i got to use this in the book. Uh, you know, it was a real story, and I needed a real live um, it worked. Uh, character yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. so somebody that was absolutely consummately evil. Uh, yeah, and that was hard for me to write. Uh, I... I, I I tend to look at the sunnier side of things, and, I, and it was hard for me to write about evil. I had to really kind of force myself. Yeah, yeah but it was, it, it was a necessary evil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I had to have so, that type of thing that, that, uh, that, that, where I had that absolute collision of he and Gordon Tallbear at the end. You know, yeah. But, yeah. So um, you talk a lot about the Atlanteans and, and how they became very uh, – centered on, on destroying their technology so that others wouldn't find it and, and hurt the world. Can you tell us a little bit about the links that they went to to do that? Yeah, I, I thought that uh, anybody that was that advanced and they were looking at cultures that were just emerging from, from an ice age, um, and I think they felt that, you know, uh, based on their own experience, too much technology in primitive hands is not a good thing. Uh, you know, it's... Um, you know, it's like handing a gun to children. They don't know what to do with it. You know, it's, uh, uh, and so once they realized that their culture was dying and that their island nation was drifting south to become uh, ice-locked, uh, you know, they decided, you know, we need to remove all evidence of our technology. We, we've given these people enough of a little start, uh, and now we need to remove all that technology and, and hide it. So that only when these people are fully capable of discovering it, uh, you know that uh, at that time, you know, uh, you know they they can they can discover it down in our mountain hideaways down in Antarctica. Yeah. I can also visualize you maybe writing another another sequel to this, showing how they did it, where they took the technology, where they buried it, where they put it in the ocean, where they buried it in mountains. I mean, you could really take off and do a whole another book about that. Well, that's a really good idea. People have asked me about a sequel, and uh, when you get to the end, you'll see how why it would be difficult to do a sequel. But that kind of a sequel would actually work. So that might be something I would toy with. I hadn't thought about that. 
Oh, I, I was thinking about it the whole time I was reading. I was going, oh, my goodness, he's got to write more about this. <laughs> <laughs> you're inspiring me. This is great. <laughs> well, you're, you're you've my inspired me by writing this book, I'll tell you, because I'm sitting on a lot of Atlantis material myself. I want to ask you um, a little bit about the anti-graffiti um, part, part of the story. Give us um, more insight to how you saw the the hovering ships and what would make them operate. Well, and again, I, uh, you know, you've got to forgive me because I'm an English major, but I, I you know, we, we know that there's mag- magnetic levitation works, and you can take a 240,000 ton train uh, and lift it six inches off of, uh, the, uh, the ground and, and move it, you know, thousands of miles. Um, the problem is, can you go higher than that? And I thought, well, why not? You know, if you can go six inches, why can't you go six miles? Um, and it's just a question of, uh, you know, again, these people had the technology to do that. So it was a, a, a magnetic levitation thing, which is something that we have today. But we haven't explored that aspect of it deep enough to say, well, can we keep planes flying using this? Uh, and rather than using jet fuel, just to have them be uh, operating under uh, magle- magnetic levitation principles. So I thought I thought there was a plausibility to it. Uh, I wanted so to ask I, you about yeah. today's technology and the way that we're wanting to put everything up in the iCloud so that they can run everything on the planet. What's your feelings about that? I'm a little scared about that. Um, it's uh, there's. <laughs> You lose the individual control. And as you were talking, or as I guess as Anastasia was talking about on the news broadcast, uh, the, uh, you know, who is hosting your technology? So, great, you've got this wonderful uh, burglar alarm system in your house, but it's being monitored out of the Ukraine. Um, you know, who's in charge here? Uh, if I'm going to have a technology in my house, I want to be in charge of that technology. Um, and I'm a little scared about uh, this omniscient uh, reach into our personal lives that uh, these technology companies have. And I don't care if it's somebody in the Ukraine or whether it's Amazon. Uh, I think it, it's getting a little bit scary, and we've got to get a little uh, better grip on it. Uh, the technology is good. The positive impacts of it are, are uh, the, the, you know, can be tremendous. Uh, but I think the, uh, the intrusion on our privacy uh, can be absolutely scary. It makes me think of that, that line out of a Superman movie when when Superman has Lois Lane and they're flying in the air, and he says, don't worry, Lois, I've got you. And he says, <laughs> yeah. not you. Says, yeah, who's got you? <laughs> yeah. Uh. So, um, well, where do we want to go from here? I um, would like to know more about your personal life, if you wouldn't mind telling us. What state do you live in? I live in Rhode Island. Uh, I was born, born and raised in uh, Connecticut, uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, you know, went in the Marine Corps and then uh, um, you know, moved around a lot. Uh, ended up settling after I was married and out of the Marine Corps. We uh, settled in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for 10 years. And then I was still in the Marine Corps Reserve, and I had the opportunity to go back on active duty for a year to go to the Naval War College here in Rhode Island and get a master's degree in international relations. So uh, we moved the family up here, and um, and Kathy was very excited about uh, coming to New England. Her dad had been a career naval officer, and they had been stationed in Boston, and she loved New England. So uh, you know, we uh, we moved up here, and uh, and then after the uh, war college was done, we decided to settle here in in Barrington, Rhode Island, which is a little bit south of Providence, 
and um, it's uh, it's been uh, really kind of a fun trip for us. So my next question is, are you going to make a movie out of this book? Boy, would I love to. Oh, I would absolutely love to, from your lips to God's ears. You know? Let me tell you, all, the whole time I was reading it, I'm going, this is a movie. This is a movie, and our Starseed community is going to back it. Absolutely. Well, I'm telling you, I have had more than one person tell me that. They said it reads like a movie, and I, that's such a, a, a an honor like a to hear that. Yeah, it's an honor to hear that because that means that my descriptive language worked. And, Absolutely. Um, and I, I just uh, – the trick is you know, getting an agent, getting a publisher, getting the, you know, the, the, somebody to pitch it to Hollywood. It's like uh, it's, you know, it's a swimming upstream in a highly, highly competitive field. Um, you know, everybody is an author today. And, um, you know, I joined a group uh, here in Rhode Island called uh, ARIA, the Association of Rhode Island uh, uh, Authors. And it's a wonderful group, and we, we do book signing events and things like that. And when I joined it four years ago, uh, there were 75 members, and now there's 375 members. Uh, so it's like everybody is an author. <laughs> And they're all we're all after that same piece of the pie, and uh, trying to get that right person to look at the book and see it and uh, and give it a shot. Uh, that's the hard part. Well, here's my feeling about it: is that the content of this book was celestially inspired, and therefore I feel like celestially the money will come, and the celestially the people will show up that are wired. To do this movie. Well, like I said, from your lips to God's ears, <laughs> I would love that to happen. Well, I feel like it's going to happen. And okay. anything that we can do here at Starseed Radio Academy to help you do that, you know, we've helped a lot of people um, that have come up with ideas and movies. We uh, we helped uh, Craig Camabasil when he did Strangers at the Pentagon. Wow. We uh, got together and, and, and sent a lot of money to him, and he was able to finish his movie. So there's people that are listening to our show right now that you may be hearing from. Well, I hope so. I absolutely hope so. Uh, so I'm looking at the time, so I'd like to pass you over to my co-host, Ariel, at this time. And it's been my pleasure talking with you, Brian. And if there's ever a time that you want to come back on our show and say anything at all, you're, you're always welcome to come back and be with us. Well, I'd love to do that, and I just want to get one little plug in, tell everybody to – uh, you know, go on to Amazon and uh, and and order the book. So. Absolutely. So back to you, Ariel. Okay. Okay. Well, this is this has really piqued my attention. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. I have to wait my turn. Um, when Tammy and Lavender get done, then they can let me read that book. But the the concept of the music. Um, that's what really got my attention because I, I've been a professional musician um, almost my whole life. So, oh, really? Um, yeah, and music and math are one and the same. Right. Yes. You know, it, it's all it's all frequency and and rhythm. So, I mean, I I realized a long time ago that music is what math sounds like. Mm-hmm. And that's a, and so exactly when right. you know. Yeah, and Tammy's been telling me that she's been riveted um, with your book, and she's like, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. It's all about music and math. And it's like, wow, that, that just <laughs> really, um, because I have, I mean, I've long said that, you know, music um, is an international, universal language. 
and um, you know, like if what you say, I think you you play guitar, even though you said <laughs> you know not all that well, but but still, if you had yeah. a guitar and then a person from um, <clears throat> you know outer Mongolia, someplace that didn't even speak English but did play an instrument, the two of you have a common. You could just come together and and make music together. Absolutely. It's that it's that it's so transcending um of language and culture and all that but going up into you know sound and frequency and the scientific applications of all that um I'm I'm just really excited to uh, to be able to read the book when it's my turn. So um <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want well, I, I use a quote. Uh, I, in many of the chapters, I have a, a, a famous quote leading it off. In one of the chapters, I have a quote from Aaron Copland, who's the great American composer. And he was asked once, you know, um, is there a purpose to music? And he said, yes. And the interviewer said, well, can you tell me what that purpose is? And he said, no. <laughs> it's it's just, it's there, and we're just not sure why it's there. Why are all of us so uh, hooked on music? And uh, you know, what, what does it really mean? And I tried to touch on that a little bit in the book, to, to explore that idea of it, it means something. And maybe we just haven't discovered it in our civilization, but maybe an advanced civilization before us did discover it. Well, understanding the impact of frequencies on the human energy field. Mm-hmm. There and 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 music is um, it doesn't have an agenda of its own. It just is, like you say. Yeah. But there is there is music that uplifts and heals, and then there's music that um, destroys. I mean, if if it's, if there's enough dissonance and and um, you know harmonic distortion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it can it can destroy and yeah. Uh, and sometimes you can hear that one note, and it can just make you cry. Uh, and I remember yeah. listening to uh, uh, Chet Atkins one time. He was playing with Tommy Emanuel. They, were, they did this wonderful album, and they did a, um, a, a, a Smoky Mountain Lullaby, I think was the uh, the song. And it was so beautiful and so gentle. I just wanted to weep. You know, it's just, and, and it's amazing what you know that music can make you do that. Uh, you know, whether you're listening to two good guitarists or whether you're going to the local symphony and they're blowing you out of the water with the 1812 overture, uh, you know, it's, it's full of emotion. It's, you know, it's mathematics full of emotion. How do you explain that? Well, like I said, everything is frequency. Yeah. Emotion has a frequency and music has a frequency and, and there's an interaction there. And, you know, it can, like I said, it can lift you up. It can fill your heart. Um, and then there is music that is not, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's dissonant, you know, the harmonic distortion and, um, you know, like, well, heavy metal is very, a lot of harmonic distortion. Oh, God, yeah, and, God, uh, I never could yeah, do it. Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, I, I did, I did a lot of, a lot of shows, you know, opening up for, for bigger acts and, um, and, and I would see that when people, if they listen to to harmonic distortion long enough, before you know it, fights are breaking out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that's. But you know, if there were a different musical program, um, it could have a different psychological, emotional effect on the listener. Yes. And you don't have to believe it. 
<laughs> for it to to be to for it to happen. And I felt that way yeah. about so many different artists I've heard over the years. Is they, they they inspire you. Either you want to go out and and conquer the world, or you just want to uh, get on your knees and and thank God you're alive. I mean, it's just it's just it's, it's wonderful what music can do uh, when it grabs you emotionally. And uh, and how it. I remember when I was in Japan. I was uh, I was in the Marine Corps. I had uh, been married for four months before I got shipped over, and I was a, a lonely guy. And George Harrison got me through the night. It was, uh, you know, listening to his uh, first album. Um, you know, there was just some powerful, powerful songs in there that emotionally uh, got me through dark times. You know, it's um, it's it's music just means so much to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, me too. And and certainly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't have got through puberty <laughs> if I had that. So like, I'd just be, you know, all full of angst. And I would just go sit at the piano, which is my, my main instrument, and I'd just sit and I'd play for hours and hours. And by the time I got done, I was purged. It, yeah, you know, just yeah. um, it's always been a refuge. But I remember, wasn't there a time um, in it's like a couple of decades, maybe it was even in the 70s, when um, there was some hoo-ha down in, was it Nicaragua? And the people were were holed up, and and somebody came up with the idea to play heavy metal music nonstop, and it drove them crazy. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you remember that yeah. news story? I, I remember a story like that, and that's true. It's it's like, uh, boy, you want to you know you really want to uh, you know end something, uh, you know, start playing music that will drive them nuts. You know that that that'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's <laughs> it's Chinese torture or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, and it certainly um um what do you think about the the uh when they somebody decided to change um the pitch of A4 A440 and they changed it from 432, which is the true resonance and then they 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 changed it so that the music would be not as healing or powerful. Do you know anything about that? I don't know much about it, but I was—I had trouble when I was doing my research, and uh, I kept finding that in one area A was listed as 440 cycles per second, in another area I'd find it was 300, uh, 438 cycles per second. I'm going, wait a minute, it's got to be one or the other, you know? What's that? And I couldn't find an explanation for it, uh, so I just kind of went with I think. I think I went with 438 cycles per second, so uh, because that was one of the things that. The pyramid had to convert from an F sharp to A to uh, stimulate it at a very high frequency to uh, to convert um, uh, hydrogen into pure energy. So, um, you know, that was one of the pieces I needed. Uh, but I, I hadn't heard that before. You know, I don't. I, I didn't know about that. Yeah, I, we had a guest on the show. Um, it it might have been years ago. We've been on the air for. This is our ninth year coming up. Um, yeah, in, wow, in March, it's our ninth year on the air, and uh, and the website will be ten years on the air, um, on the on the web. But we, I think we had a guest that was talking. It was a he was a musician who had um, is like wonderfully uplifting, healing music when, and he actually had the um, equipment to measure responses. And this mm. this frequency does this, and this frequency does that. I think it was him, um, Ted. I can't call it, think of it right now, but 
Winslow, <laughs> um, and he was talking about that the true resonance of the pitch of A would be 432, and then sometime in history they decided to change that because there was like magic happening when the frequencies were just right, you know, like converting energy and making things happen. So they changed so that all all orchestras and, and you know, symphony things, they tune now to 440. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was almost like a a um, a move of the dark side to <laughs> to disempower music, you know, wow. to take that to take that away. So um, I haven't done a whole lot of of research. I don't understand it completely, but I do know that um, the original natural frequency was 432 uh, cycles per second. I'll be darned. I, uh, that yeah. I, I I didn't know that. Didn't know. That. Yeah, I basically, so, even though I play play guitar, I'm I'm, I'm a musical illiterate, um, so uh, or dyslexic, I suppose. Uh, I I always had difficulty trying to read music, um, and so I had to learn. I learned guitar both by ear, and uh, in later years, I took lessons, and uh, we did what is called tabulation. So um, I don't have the sophisticated uh, 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 educational background in music. Uh, that I would love to have had, uh, but um, I know know just enough about it to get in trouble, I guess. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, sometimes when you don't understand all of the, you know, the theory and the 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 the, the things that they would have educated with, you know, reading music is it's not the end all. But if you don't have that that knowledge, then the music you create is coming straight from your heart. Yeah. And and yeah, I always had a problem because I knew too much. <laughs> and it's like, oh, what if I threw in a flat 9? It's like, no, just do what you hear. You know, and I had to keep putting that, you know, the left brain out of the picture. So, Well, yeah, and that's what's interesting when you think of It's not a detriment. The, yeah. But but you, when you think of the intuitive musicians, uh, you know, the uh, um the Beatles um uh clapped it, you know, they uh, they couldn't read the music, but they understood what they they were. They understood the sound they were reaching for. Uh, oh, absolutely! And, well, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, I'm sure there, it's a um, it's just a natural ear. Yeah. And that's and like you said, everybody has an ear for music, whether they perform it or listen to it. It has an effect um, on people. Yeah, and that's powerful. the that that's the thing that we haven't been able to fully explain. And I just wanted to touch on that in the book to say, you know, here's a great question, folks. You know, um, you know, uh, these, you know, I, I think we can use music to uh, to advance technology in a way that, you know, we haven't even thought of before. Um, and uh, you know, I need a lot more smarter people in the room than me to to help figure that out. But uh, I did want that's kind of what I was trying to touch on there. Well, everything is frequency, whether it's music, color, um, sound, light, everything has a frequency. And understanding how to get those things to, you know, complement each other and support each other and blend together to come up with a new thing, um, yeah, it, it's going to take somebody besides you or me, but um, I know it's possible. Yeah. You but know, you most, most automobile horns are tuned to the key of F. I and nobody know knows that. why. Nobody knows why. <laughs> it's like, you know, and 
And, and one of the things I mentioned in the book is, uh, you know, that uh, a common thing when, you know, you go to a high school basketball game or a college basketball game, and if a player throws a ball up to the basket and he completely misses, doesn't touch anything, everybody in the stands chants air ball. Well, when they chant air and chant ball, they're chanting from F sharp to D uh, in every gym uh, across the nation. And nobody can figure out how, how does a crowd know to start in F sharp and end in D. Um, there's something intuitive oh, in yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's Twilight Zone stuff. You know? it, it is. It is. It's, you know, do, 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 do. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's a collective, when people are at a game, you know, they're all focused on the same thing. So that starts them off at least in the same ballpark. So um, I want to uh, talk to our audience uh, for just a moment. If you are already on the switchboard and you have a question or comment for Brian, um, all you need to do is press 1 so that we know you want to come on the air. If you're listening on the computer, then you just need to pick up the phone and dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1, and uh, we'll get you ready to come and ask your question if you have one. Okay, so um, sometimes we have quest- callers with questions, and sometimes everyone gets everything they need from what you've already said. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm, I'm happy we'll to, to try and answer anything if I can. Uh, so, uh, you know, see what happens. So um, when you were – let me ask, is this your first book? Yes, it is. Uh, I've, I have made uh, any number of dozens of attempts uh, over the years just to write something. And I would get 15, 20 pages into it and hit a stone wall and going, you know, I just painted myself into a corner. I, I you know, I don't know how to get, how to resurrect the story at this point. And this one all of a sudden came to me all at once. And like I said, I was, it was almost like I was channeling. Um, something from uh, out of my body because this one just it all started flowing and I was pulling stuff from my childhood I'm pulling stuff from uh, uh, things that I had read I'm you know pulling uh, you know uh, uh, all all kinds of things from all kinds of sources and it just it, it flowed and it flowed and it flowed and I had to repolish it and repolish it and repolish it and it took me six years but um, it was uh, it was you know it was you know I, I'm this is the first one. I don't know if I got another one in me. I'm working on something else right now, but uh, and I've got actually a couple of other things that I, I think uh, you know, might be uh, publishable at some point. Uh, but um, it's uh, it, it's it's a tough process, you know, because you start off with a good idea, and sometimes you can't always carry it all the way through to the end. Well, yeah, it's it's a very very painstaking, um, detailed process. And um, I think you got another one. I think you got another one, like like Lavender said, um, a sequel to this. But uh, congratulations uh, to well, thank you to so come much. out with your to come out with your first book. Um, how is how are your friends and your family? Are they all um, excited for you? Oh yeah, and my family had a large uh, amount to do with the editing of it. Uh, so um, I have. Um, you know, both my sons are pretty sharp, and uh, uh, the oldest one is in the uh, uh, the movie business. He's an assistant director, and he's a good writer in his own right. And uh, so he really got me into the idea of 
doing story arcs. Okay, so how do you, you know, you start three or four different storylines and you want to have them carry over. Uh, and how do you do that? And so he taught me a lot about that. And uh, they all had input to me on the editing process. Uh, you know, Brendan, uh, my youngest son, just said, hey, Dad, you're, you're too formal in your language. You've got to get more, uh, you know, more casual, you know. So I had to kind of go back through and rewrite all kinds of stuff. Um, I had a good friend who's in the book club with me, and uh, he's also a writer, and he took a look at it, and he said, uh, and he didn't say anything. He handed me a, a, uh, um, an article that uh, the title of which was Less is More, and it was all about the idea of taking things out of your book. And all of a sudden I had to go back and relook at the book and say, you know, I got a lot of stuff in there that's a lot of crap, and I really need to pull it out. You know? So I probably took about 50 pages of stuff out of the book. Uh, so, but I had a very supportive structure between family and friends, uh, who were, uh, you know, uh, my friends didn't even know I was doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, but my family was, uh, terrifically supportive. And then once I got published, uh, my friends were just tremendously enthusiastic about it. So, yeah, oh, it was pretty that's good. That's great. That's great. <clears throat> Cause it seems to be, um, you know, the subject matter that's kind of a departure from your, um, from your resume. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's kind of like uh, you know, you, if you look at my resume and then you look at the book and you go, where the hell did that come from? You know, <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's uh, um, you know, but it, it's it's one of those things. that's kind of a a lot of my life is poured into that. A lot of the experiences that the characters, individual characters, have had uh, came right from my life experiences, uh, and um, yeah, my uh, uh, my one uh, the character who has a terrible stammer. Uh, he, uh, I didn't have a terrible stammer, but I had a teacher like he had, uh, who was just a miserable person. This was in eighth grade. And, um, you know, she just, she just told me I was a stupid, stupid boy. And, uh, you know, and you don't do that in front of a class of other kids. And I, but that was something that stuck with me and I use it into this character's life and, uh, and how it, uh, he was able to turn that into a motivational, uh, uh, uh part of his life. Uh, in spite of this evil woman. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I, there's all those things, uh, you know, things kind of, I had, <laughs> I brought out stuff that I had from, I read in comic books, for God's sakes. Uh, okay. I don't know, it all just kept flowing. And um, and I think that's part of the secret, is you just have to open yourself up and just say, go, just start typing and typing and typing, you know, and all kinds of stuff is going to come to you. And then you just kind of go through and throw out what you don't need. Um now, when I was in the Marine Corps, I had a, a guy, a troop, said to one of the other troops, he said, he said, oh, you got a nice mustache. He says, what do I got to do to grow a mustache? And he said, well, just get a lot of hair on your face and take away everything that doesn't look like a mustache, you know. So I, thought, <laughs> <laughs> so I figured it's the same thing with books. You get a lot of words on the page and then take away everything that doesn't look like a novel, you know. So, um mm-hmm. But uh, it's so far it's, it's worked for me, and, and uh, we'll see if it, I can turn it into some success. Well, we would love that for you, and um, I want to tell our audience one more time: your website is songofatlantis.com, and as you mentioned before, you can find it on Amazon. And when you know, when Lavendar loves a book, you got to take note of that. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate she, she's that. She's read thousands and, uh, of books. 
Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I I yeah I know you've got a lot of people that you uh, have on your show and everything, and and to have that type of enthusiastic response is just absolutely wonderful for me. So thank you so much. Oh, well, it has been our pleasure, and um, we're so glad that you were able to come and be with us this evening. And as Lavendar said, you know, when you've got anything uh, new in the works, um, or if you want to just come back and visit, just let us know. You're always welcome on Starseed okay. Radio Academy. Okay. Thank you so much, Ariel. I appreciate okay. everything, and say uh, good night to uh, Lavendar for me, uh, and I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to be here. It's been our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank so you. So, everyone, you have, thank you. You've been listening to Brian Power on his new book, Song of Atlantis, which you can find on his website, songofatlantis.com, and also on Amazon. So check it out, and we will be back next week. And in the meantime, every single day, find something to be grateful for and show compassion. Good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.